We're continuing in the book of Galatians, in which the people of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, were held hostage by false teachers. And Paul's intent by the Holy Spirit in writing this letter is to come and rescue them. And remember what Paul's intent with this letter is, is to defend the message of the grace of God through the gospel. What Paul is trying to do here is remind the people of God and to win their hearts back to realize that it is finished. It is finished indeed. There is nothing that you can contribute to your salvation. There is nothing of the works of the law that demands of you to help out what Christ did on Calvary. And so Paul now is continuing with his appeal to these people. Would you hear what I have to say, Galatians? And you would think after an intense first two chapters that Paul would probably tone it down. But in fact, we're about to realize right from verse 1 that he goes into a higher gear. What we're about to read is, is Paul almost grabbing the Galatians by the shoulders and shaking him, saying, Would you not wake up from your doldrum? Would you not wake up from this falsehood that has hypnotized you? And so as we read this, feel the heart of this man who is deeply concerned about the state of those that he has won to Christ in the first place. He wants to see them set free. He wants to see them come back into that realm of rest that is a result of understanding grace. And if you think that this was a problem in the days of Paul alone, you were sadly mistaken. For there are many, and perhaps even some in this place this morning, that are held hostage to a false view of God, and perhaps a skewed view of the gospel. And so he begins in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now for Paul to call these people foolish, it's not to say that they did not have the ability to think. It's that they did have the ability to think, but they're not using their ability to think. They're receiving some doctrine and they are not challenging it. They are not analyzing it. They are not trying to filter it. They are not trying to compare it to what they have known. They are just simply drinking it in. They're just mindlessly embracing it. And it's because the presentation and the persuasion of these false teachers had such an influence on them that they just kind of let go and have slipped into this state. And what's scary is that they were once in truth. They were once in a place where they embraced and understood what it really meant to be saved. And now all for a sudden, they're being lured into a different belief. And I thought to myself reading this, Remember, these are not non-believers. These are believers that are now being held captive to falsehood. How did that happen? How were you once in truth basking, as we're about to find out, and even experiencing the grace and the power of God through the gospel? How did you go from there to now flirting with false doctrine? What that shows you and I as believers is that it's possible. It's possible, and I pray that you would never realize that in your life, where you, you see somebody, you probably even worship with somebody in the same sanctuary, you've had Bible studies, and then down the road, they're embracing some weird theology. How did that happen? I believe that the reason why it happened is because they failed to put on the armor of God long enough for them 
to be captives to the enemy. We've done a whole series in Ephesians and we talked about the armor of God. And let's just go back to this one point. Everything about the armor of God has to do with truth. Is it not? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Everything about all those pieces of the garments point back to understanding certain truths from the scriptures. And when you and I fail to put on the armor of God, we expose ourselves to certain dangers. Now, I know this, is, this sounds almost like it's distant from us. Like, that will never happen to me. Like, we're hearing this and we're saying, I get it, this is a nice lesson about the book of Galatians, but surely this will never be a danger or threat to me. Hold off on the armor of God long enough and you will shock yourself. You will be shocked to know what can happen to a man, what can happen to a woman who fails to take this word, who fails to divide it rightly, who does not approach it with reverence and and a holy desire to know truth, where they can veer off. And this is what happened to them. I believe that that helmet of salvation was on the shelf too long. It was collecting dust only for them to be exposed to a wrong view of salvation that was putting them into legalistic bondage. Now, perhaps you and I might not think this is a threat. Maybe it's just for the Galatians, but that's not what Paul told Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, you could turn there because this is a life verse. And yes, Timothy is a pastor, but this is true for all believers. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching and on your doctrine. Persist in this. So don't just do it one time. Don't just do it at one season of your life. Persist in this. Keep going. Keep plowing. Keep realizing. Keep looking. Keep studying. Keep feeding yourself. Why? For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Wow. So he says, keep a watch on yourself. Number one, watch your life. Watch if your life is conformed to the thing that you're teaching. The last thing you want to be is a hypocrite, Pastor Tim. Watch yourself and your doctrine closely. Why? Because as you share these truths, you will one, save yourself by understanding it, and you'll save those who hear you by receiving that truth. So this handling of the Word of God, this understanding of it, is a matter of life and death. If we only believe that about our understanding of the Word of God. Yes, it's to delight in God. Yes, it's to know our God, but it's also to protect ourselves. It's a shield. And we see here that the Galatians have let off for some reason. And this tells us an indirect thing. That when we become lazy in reading, when we become relaxant in understanding, when we feel like we are losing that hunger to know the truth, all it will take eventually, if you stick around in churchianity long enough, if you stick around Christendom long enough, is for a person to have a nice personality, a nice ability to speak and present false truth. And will lure people into a place where they never thought they would go. That's why he says, who has bewitched you? In other words, who's hypnotized you? You're under an influence, almost under witchcraft. Now he's not saying that literally. He's just speaking in symbolic, metaphorical terms to say, you're, you're, you're in a different place now. You're almost being controlled by somebody else. You're being controlled by something else. How have you come to that place? Your understanding is cloudy now. You're being just lured. You're just being taken by these people as though you don't have a mind of your own. 
And the Bible tells us about false teaching, that there are many voices in the world. In fact, Ephesians 4 says that there are winds of doctrine tossing people to and fro. So when a new teaching comes out, people are going this way. When a fresh new revelation comes out, people are going that way. And so you know what we're dealing with day by day? We're dealing with different voices. We're dealing with the voices of false teachers. We're dealing with the voices of secular, popular psychologists. We're dealing with the voice of the devil himself. You and I are dealing with the voice of our own flesh. And all these things are coming at us at one time, trying to blow us off our feet. So what do you and I do? What do you and I do with that reality surrounding us? We bind ourselves and we anchor ourselves to the truth of the scriptures daily. We embrace this word and we beg God to give us the revelation necessary to stay in truth. Because to stay in truth is to stay in freedom. Have you ever wondered why there are the masses sitting in stadiums even? Going to events with people that are promoting false teaching and they're eating it up like it's nothing. I'll tell you why. Because the majority of them don't know their Bibles. Don't assume that in America, with the wealth of things that we have, with our apps and our iPads and our screens and everything else, that people know their Bibles. That's not true. And they expose themselves to so many dangers in doing so. And may we be people of the book that love the word of God. Not for fear of going into falsehood, but for a love for this God. And as a result, would know protection to fellowship with this God, and to remain in truth. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. What was he saying there? He wasn't saying that you physically saw the crucifixions. No, he's saying, listen, when I preached to you, Galatians, when I presented the gospel to you, it was so clear, it was so accurate, it was given in such purity and passion. It was as though you were at the very event itself. There is no other way that I could have presented the gospel clear to you. You saw the crucifixion when I came in the evangelistic ministry that I was called as an apostle. And you've almost been there. You almost smelt the event itself. Paul's saying, how did you go from there to this? How did you actually see it to now seeing a skewed version of it? It doesn't matter how great of a preacher you have in your life. If you do not do your own thing, if you do not take up your own responsibility, you can veer off. You and I have, yes, the privilege and the opportunity and the necessity to hear. But even these people heard from the Apostle Paul. Yet because of their own neglect. Because they failed to be like the Bereans who heard Paul and said, that's great, Paul, but we got to go to our Bibles. They found themselves in a different place. Don't be too dependent upon whoever God has placed in your life. Yes, we need each other. But you need to get with God for yourself. Or else we'll be like the Israelites. When Moses was up on that mountain long enough, they said, where's Moses? All right, let's go to the golden calf. We are not dependent upon a man who is filled by the Spirit of God. We are not dependent upon people and leadership that are gifted. They are humans just like you, and God forbid they might even fail. And here's a, here's a certain truth. They might even disappoint you at times. You and I must have a firm grasp on God ourselves. 
So that even if things break out and things happen, you are anchored because you've anchored yourself for yourself in the word of God. Please remember that for the rest of your life. Please remember that. Then he begins to do something very interesting. Very interesting. Because remember, we talked about how Paul now is about to get into teaching. For the first two chapters, Paul was talking about his testimony. And he was giving the reason why they should believe in his message because of the authenticity of where he came from and how Christ had called him. But now he's making a transition. I'm about to now dig into some theology. I'm about to break down some teaching to you. And it's going to get rich. And it's going to get powerful. But before he even goes into that, he goes, hold on. I'm going to come from a different angle here. I want to ask you a few questions. Remember, he talked about up to this point his own story, his own conversion, his own experience of the gospel. And you know what Paul's about to do right now? He's about to take his finger, stick it in their chest and say, what about your testimony? What about what happened to you when you first believed? What did this gospel do to your life? Did you not taste of this gospel? Did you not experience this grace for yourself? So now Paul's going to turn the tables and actually now confront them about their own story. He wants them to recollect and remember where they came from if they actually did come into contact with this gospel. And he asked four main questions, but it would do us some good too to ask ourselves three of these questions and to reflect upon these truths for ourselves. So look what he says here in verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. And here's the first question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now to say did you receive the Spirit is synonymous with did, did you get saved? Because all of us as believers, when we get saved, when we are justified, when we believe on Christ, you know what happens? The Spirit of God comes in and dwells you forever. So when Paul's saying, did you receive the Spirit... What Paul is saying is, when you got saved, was it by doing things to get that inheritance, or did you hear a message, believe it, and be transformed by it? Now, here's a beautiful thing about this question. It's not the main point, but it's a wonderful point. That Paul asking this question proves something about a testimony. That every person who is a Christian at one point became a Christian. That's important for those who grew up in the church, especially. When did it happen, and how did it happen? That's a, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Because for 20 years of my life, I thought that I inherited salvation because my parents. But guess what? God doesn't have grandchildren. God only has children. You and I must grasp and be adopted ourselves no matter where mommy and daddy came from. Just because mommy and daddy got saved and you and I came from them, we're not God's grandchildren. We are only God's children. And so you and I have to ask yourselves that question. When did it happen? And how did it happen? Now, I am not one to say that you need to know the exact date and the hour where the Spirit of God indwelt you and you knew that you were a born-again creature. Because I don't even remember the day. But I can tell you the period of time. And I can tell you the transition where everything changed. I can tell you when I began to feel the weight of my sin, when I began to feel that I was a hypocrite, when I began to realize that I'm not truly born again, I can tell you that time. And I can tell you when it began to change in that season, in those days in which was being kept up and was being convicted by the Spirit of God and this Word began to vibrate with life. I can tell you that. Everybody's supposed to have a testimony. 
Even if you grew up in the church, there has to be a moment where you realize that I want to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life. You're not born into the kingdom of God. That's why he says you have to be born again. So he says, when did it happen in an indirect sense? But not just when did it happen, how did it happen? When you received the Spirit, was it by the works of the law or was it by hearing it with faith? Galatians, did you get circumcised and then you got saved? Galatians, did you, did you obey the dietary laws and then when you kept it long enough, then the Spirit of God came and changed your heart? Or was there a moment where you understood you needed God, you needed salvation, you needed forgiveness, and then you received it? And then you received it. And I read this verse last night and was thinking to myself, recollecting my own testimony and wondering to myself, did I realize that? Did I realize that it was by faith? And again, I can't tell you the exact day. I can't tell you the exact moment. I can tell you one thing. One thing for certain. That there was a moment where I realized that he is willing to forgive me. And I realized that there was a moment that he wanted to change me. And he alone had the power to do it. I realized that no matter how much I had messed up, that in a moment he's willing to change it all and bring me into right standing with God. I didn't have all the terminology. I didn't have all the verses down. I just had this one realization. He loves me. And he gave himself for me. And he wants to change me if I were to just admit it and give my heart to him in full surrender. Did you come to that moment in your life? Well, I was young. Well, if you knew it young, then praise God. How did it happen? And he's trying to bring them into that place again of the glorious truth about salvation by faith experientially. He's not getting into doctrine yet. He's going to do that. He's trying to provoke them experientially. Do you remember? Let's just stay here because it's just really nice to stay here once in a while. Do you remember when you got saved? Do you remember when you really got born again? When everything really changed? When it became real to you? Do you remember? I can tell you how it changed. I can tell you everything changed. You can testify to this, that when you were born again and those eyes opened up for the first time, not only did you realize that you're saved, you realized that life itself was authored by God. The sky was bluer, the grass is greener, the wind was stronger, the flowers smelled better, everything was different. There's a new tune to your step now. There's a new peace in your heart. There's a new joy. You felt like it didn't matter what the world gave to you. You had it all in Christ. Do you remember that? Paul's asking them. And their hearts are getting stirred for sure. He goes on to verse 3. Are you so foolish to ask a second question? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is what he's trying to say. If your new birth began in the power of the Holy Spirit, what makes you think your growth in Christianity will not be done by the same? If you were brought in by the Spirit of God, what makes you think that you will not continue in the Spirit of God? If you were made new initially by the Holy Spirit, what makes you think that you will not need him in your growth in character and personality in the Spirit? You need the Holy Spirit, not just as salvation, but in your sanctification. Now, why is Paul saying this to this crowd? 
Because remember, they're dealing with false teachers that want to boast in the flesh. Hey, we are saved. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but look, we're circumcised. And yeah, we're saved, but we're also maintaining our salvation by works of the law. And what Paul's trying to say in these two verses is, guess what? It's neither. Your justification, neither your sanctification is upon you. It's all by the Spirit of God. Now, what Paul is not saying is that in your sanctification, your growth in Christian experience, your growth in Christian character, what Paul is not saying is you don't need to obey and you don't need to observe the commands of God. He's not saying that. What Paul is trying to say is where's the source of your strength in your sanctification? Where's your focus? Where do you derive your energy from as you desire to grow in God? Is it in the flesh? Is it in the flesh or is it in the spirit? Now, up to this point, we've been being hammered by justification by faith, right? Now, here's a new thing. What about sanctification by faith? I'm sure all of us in here would say, justification by faith, resting in the finished work of Christ. What about sanctification by faith, resting in the work of the Spirit? Do you know how many Christians are frustrated when they fail to realize that they are attempting to grow in their Christian walk because they are dependent upon their own strength, wisdom, and power? It is unbelievable. So let's just stay in this point this morning and by the grace of God be convinced of this, that there is a work of grace not just in saving you but in sanctifying you. This is so important. I know it's Sunday morning. I know it's a cold morning. But let's pay attention here if we're going to pay attention anywhere. Paul here wants to make a point very clear. That you being perfected. And that's another word of saying matured. You being matured in the Christian walk is by the spirit. Not by the flesh. How do I know if I'm being sanctified by the spirit? How do I know if I'm doing it in the flesh? And how do I know I'm doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit? You would be amazed to know how many are doing it in the flesh and don't even realize it when they think they're in the spirit. I thought to myself reading this verse, Lord, there has to be clarity here. This can't just be ambiguous. This can't be just mysterious. What is the clear answer? How do I know that I can grow and be at rest and be at peace and not know condemnation and not know shame as I'm trying to grow in my desire to look like Jesus? One verse, I believe amongst many, but this one is a powerful one enough. In 2 Corinthians, please turn there in chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul's talking about the glory of the new covenant in comparison to the old covenant. And he comes to this paramount verse that has been memorized and cherished by so many, but perhaps not very much lived. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 3.18? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now look at this. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We see that? This work of being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You know how that happens? It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians, are you being perfected by the flesh or by the Spirit? Glory to glory, that's what we want, right? It comes from the Spirit. Now people look at this verse and they celebrate it, but they don't realize that there's deep application to it. What's the application? Well, how are you and I transformed from one degree of glory to another? In the prior statement. And we all, 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The key to being transformed from one degree of glory to another is found in the practice of beholding the glory of the Lord. You know what we have today? We have a lot of Christians trying to behave when they're called to behold. Let me say that one more time. We have a lot of Christians dispensing all their energy and effort and thoughts and time and trying to behave when this verse says, you know what, why don't you just behold? And as you behold, it will influence your behavior. So let me put it this way. If you and I are doing everything in our attempt to grow in Christ, except mainly beholding, we're not doing it in the Spirit. I hope that's clear. What does it mean to behold the glory of the Lord? That's important. If it's going it's to affect my transformation, I need to know what it means to behold. The word simply means to contemplate and to reflect. To contemplate and to reflect. You know what Paul is saying? Contemplate and reflect on the glory of the Lord and watch as you stare at him long enough that it will infect you and change you as a result. The same way Moses was on that mountain as he spent time with God, that glory reflected off of his face and when he came down into the valley, it shone throughout the camp. Would you do the same? To behold the glory of the Lord. I know it sounds simple, but it's supernatural. And as simple as it sounds, it's not as easy as people may seem to think. To behold, to contemplate, to reflect. When you behold anything, if if I'm beholding that artwork on that wall right there, it requires something of me. And this is where the Lord wants us to bring our focus and our energy and our walk with Him. To behold Him. To actually stare at Him. To contemplate and to reflect to the point where it actually affects us as a result. So what does beholding entail? Do I just stare at my Bible long enough until it rubs off on me? Well, what does it mean to behold? Well, I'll tell you what it involves. It it involves focus, time, and patience. Focus, time, and patience. If you are not willing to include these things in your practice of beholding, you might have been beholding but have aborted it in the process. When I look at anything to contemplate and reflect, it requires focus. If I'm going to study this thing on this wall right here, these branches and that verse, I have to look at it long enough to be able to comprehend what I'm seeing. To be able to absorb all the details, it requires undistracted devotion for fullness of effectiveness. So many people attempt to behold, but they're doing it in such a distracted state of mind. And they have deceived themselves in thinking, well, I'm beholding while doing so many other things in the process or being won by different things in the moment where they do not reap the most out of it. And so to behold is to contemplate and reflect on the Lord through His Word, in His presence, through worship, where it is completely devoted to Him in that time and that moment. And it comes to the next point, time. I can focus, but if I don't focus long enough, again, I'm not going to reap the most out of it. Now, we all have lives, and we all are not called to be people that are stuck in our rooms for hours on end. We all have things to do. But give the Lord what you can give Him, and watch how He'll bless it. Honor that time. Select that time. Set apart that time. And you would be amazed of how God will multiply those loaves and fishes. 
Lord, this is all I got. So many people come up and ask, I don't have time and I don't have this. And I always answer it this way. Leviticus 1. You know this. We went through Leviticus. When the Lord gave instruction about the offering, the burnt offering, he gave different options. He says, listen, if you can afford a bull, give a bull. And he goes down and says, if you can't afford a bull, give a goat. You can't give a goat, then give a bird. And all of those offerings had the same result. It was pleasing to the Lord. And so people say, well, I don't have time. Then give a goat. Give what you can give him. I don't even have a goat, man. I, this season of life is so intense. Then give a bird. Give whatever you can give to the Lord and watch how it will be a pleasing aroma unto him. Let that set you free. Let that liberate your heart to say that the Lord is not one to say, if it's not this amount of time, it's not going to happen. When he looks at your life and mine, he realizes what we're surrounded by. He realizes what responsibilities we have. And he just calls us to give him what we can give him. And it will produce the same thing. And patience. It requires focus. It requires time. But it requires patience. It takes time to comprehend. It takes time to behold. It takes time to look at it from different angles. And so be patient with yourself as you sit in his presence. As you dedicate that time to him. Don't expect the things to be transformed right away. But watch how layer after layer things will be changed. Watch how effortlessly your language begins to change. Your mindset begins to change. It never fails me. It never fails me to hear from somebody who said, Brother, I've given time to the Lord. And to see how it changes them without them even realizing it. It is unbelievable. Like Moses, who initially came down with his face shining and everybody noticed. He didn't realize it at first. Until they pointed it out. And it is unbelievable how somebody just takes this simple rule of beholding and applies it to their lives with everything within them. More than, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to try to pray like him and I'm going to try to preach like her and him or whatever. And I'm just going to come to a place where I'm going to just try to behave a certain way and convince myself and other people that I'm really being conformed to the image of Christ. Instead of giving all of that energy to trying to put that on, behold him. And as you behold them, all those things will flow and you won't even realize it at first. I guarantee you that. Focus. Time. Patience. And as you do this, you'll realize how you are maturing in the Spirit. I don't know how it works. All I know is that it works. And if there's anything that I can learn from this is that God has so Put a law on sanctification. Look at his heart behind it. He has made a law. If you want to grow in your image of my son, spend time with him. And I don't just behold, and you and I are not just called to behold in one part of our day and then do whatever we want throughout the day and then behold him again. Yes, there is that undivided, devoted time to him. But man, to behold is to reflect and to contemplate. So as you're driving, you know what you're doing? You're listening to things that stir your affections for Christ. You're feeding your mind whatever it needs to be fed so that you can see him in a clearer way. And as you behold him throughout the day, as you do that, watch how you will change. Watch how your interests will change. Watch how your, your, your everything will be different because you beheld him. I think the greatest illustration, though it's limited, to understand how this works is when you fall in love with somebody. 
if you've ever fell in love with somebody, you know what happens. Is that perhaps there was a moment where something initially changed, or how you saw that person, or you saw somebody for the first time, and you got to know them for that moment, and something began to spark in you. There was an initial attraction. And what happens as you fall in love? You begin to do things that you never thought you would do. You begin to behave in a certain way. It doesn't just stay in your emotions. It begins to affect your behavior. And as you begin to discover this person and understand who they are more and more, and you realize their personality, and you realize their dreams, and you realize their relationship with the Lord, and you realize their ambitions and all these different things, you find yourself drawn to the point where you say, I want to do things to please this person, and I don't want to do things to not please this person. You're, you're being won by that person as you're discovering them. And it's effortless. You're not trying to force yourself to do anything. You're being pulled by another force. You're being pulled by another thing that is as a result bringing you and every faculty of your being. There's a rewiring that's happening almost. I've seen guys fall in love. You know what they start doing? They start going to the gym. where they ne- You couldn't pay them to go to the gym before. They start working and they get a job. They start becoming more responsible. They start talking differently. They start dressing differently. You think, what's happening to you, man? Because they met somebody. And here's where that illustration falls short. Because as you discover a person, yes, especially in the initial phases, you think they're perfect. You're like, this person is exactly the person for me. But here's the thing, and this is true. No matter how wonderful they are, as you discover them, guess what's going to happen? You're going to realize that there's faults. You're going to realize that there's shortcomings. You're going to realize that there's failures in that person. Right? Not so with Jesus. Because as you discover him, you see how lovely he is and that he is holier than you thought. And he is more majestic and more brilliant and more heart-stopping than you could ever imagine the more you behold him. And so there'll never come to a point in your life where you behold him long enough where you say, I figured it out. Or you beheld him long enough where you say, oh, I see something that's wrong. No, you will continually fall in love if you just give that time and attention to do so. You can't fall deeper in love with somebody if you don't give them time and attention. You're texting all the time. You're talking all the time. You're trying to find ways to spend time with that person. As you do, it affects you. Do it with Jesus. Here's a law, and never forget this law, please. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. That in the physical, if you want to get hungry, what do you do? Just stop eating. Don't eat, and you'll feel hunger. It's not so in the spiritual. In the spiritual, if you want to get hungry, you eat. As you eat, a hunger begins to expand. Your appetite begins to grow more and more. And maybe you've realized this. This is so amazing. You pick up a book, a Christian book. Let's say about past moves of God or a biography. Church history, whatever. You want to feed your understanding of where this faith has been before. As you read different stories, what begins to happen? An appetite. You read a book on prayer, a man of prayer that's, that's teaching on prayer. What begins to happen? You begin to get an appetite for prayer. You read on revival. What begins to happen? You're, you want to start praying for revival. So it is, if not more, with the scriptures. If you don't feel like reading the scriptures, the best thing you can do is read the scriptures. Do you hear me this morning? Please, this is very practical. I know it's not deep. It's very practical. When you don't feel like it, the best thing you can do is pick it up and read it. And watch how your appetite will begin to grow. Watch how you begin to get sucked into it. You go, man, one chapter is not enough. If you really want to blow your mind, if you really want to come to a state where you are being so filtered by this truth, 
morning and night, oh, morning and night, your dreams will change. The way you wake up will change. When you give time to this and just behold them, the Bible promises that you'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being perfected in the flesh? The anchor to growth and sanctification is to be anchored in the practice of beholding Him. Don't forget it. Now he comes to his third point back in Galatians. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now look at this part. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul asked in the first question about the reception of the Spirit at justification. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you get saved by doing stuff to get saved or was it by faith? Then he goes to sanctification. Are you growing in your holiness because you're trying to obey certain laws in your strength? Or are you depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit? So he goes from justification to sanctification. And would you believe it? He goes to manifestation. And he says, the Spirit of God manifesting in your corporate gathering. By works of the law or by hearing with faith? You know what convicted me about this verse? That Paul brought about this question as though he did so so casually, like it was something that was experienced on a regular. It's like, hey, what's happening in your meetings? The presence of God. God intervening in specific ways where he supernaturally shows himself and people are being blessed by it. I thought to myself, he's asking like as though it happens. Like it's, it's, it's a norm almost. He says here, Does it happen by works of the law or does it happen by faith? He's calling them to remember their experiences of the Holy Spirit as a group, as a church, as churches. And he's saying, did you you experience that by coercing God and trying to convince him that you're worthy? Or did it all happen as a result of a faith that believed and expressed through asking and seeking and calling upon him? How did it happen? Obeying the law and proving yourself to God? Do you know why God chooses to move in a place? Do you know why God chooses to move in mighty power? God does so simply by the rule of faith. By people who hunger and trust that he's able to do it. Not by how much you can prove yourself to be pious and holy to convince him that we are worthy enough for him to come and flood this place with himself. You know why God did it that way? So that when God does come and show up, nobody would take glory for it. Nobody be able to look and say, oh, it's because we did this and we did that, that God is moving in our services like this. He says, no, it's by faith. It's simply by humbling yourself and believing and trusting in him that you're able to see these things come to pass. That's how good God is, and that's how jealous he is for his glory. And I pray that we would never come to a place, no matter how much God moves in this house, that we would ever boast in self or look at our own efforts or look at our own track record to say, this is why God is doing it. No, it's simply because... He responds to hearts that hunger and believe him enough to do what only he can do in a place. And this is what prayer week, here's a little announcement within the message. As we begin tonight prayer week, we have to believe God or else this week will be a waste. We're going to waste every night here at 7 o'clock for the next few days if we do not come with faith. And to believe that the Holy Spirit is able and willing to do mighty things in this very room that you're sitting in right now. 
So Paul calls them to remember even the things that they experienced gloriously and supernaturally by the Spirit. And he says, that all comes by faith. It's by faith. It's by faith. And here's where things turn now as we close in a moment. Paul now gives an example of faith. In verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see what Paul is doing here? It's amazing what he's doing here. Remember, you have these Judaizers that are coming in and trying to boast in their ethnicity. You have these Judaizers, these guys who are Jewish in race, trying to promote the law and convincing the people to embrace it because of its history and because of the people that God has used throughout it, all these different things. And Paul is now coming in to say, I'm going to give you one of the best examples of faith and by righteousness coming by faith alone. And he points to Abraham. What better way to counterattack this false teaching that's trying to promote Jewish law by going and promoting the founder of the nation himself? Saying, Abraham. Abraham, a man who lived by faith. And you can imagine that as this letter is being read, that these Judaizers, if they were present, are going, wait a minute, what is he trying to do right now? If anything, they would have brought up Abraham to these Christians and said, hey, Abraham got circumcised. Look at, look at the significance of that. Look at how deep it meant to the Lord to say that this will be an everlasting covenant. And now Paul now is coming in and saying, I want to give you the best, one of the best examples. Of Here, here's Abraham. Jesus is going, huh? What is he trying to do here? Paul now is about to step by step demolish this doctrine. He's about to come in now and bring it to a great blow. What does he say? Look at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 6. It was that moment where this man received righteousness from God when he simply believed a promise that was given by God. But where was the gospel preached to Abraham? Because we are saved by the gospel alone. Well, look here. Verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So God preached. There was a preaching of the gospel that happened saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis 12. So in that moment, he received some revelation of what would happen through his seed concerning the nations and the Gentiles being blessed as a result of that seed who is ultimately manifested in Christ. And he comes to Genesis 15 and he, he, and he believes God for a promise and it was granted to him as righteousness. You know why that's so significant? You have to turn there to see it. It's in Romans 4. Romans 4, 9 and 10. This is going to literally shatter so much of what these false teachers are promoting. Because what were they saying? You need circumcision to be saved. You need that flesh to be cut off. You need to perform this ritual in order to be right with God because Abraham did it. And now look what Paul says in Romans 4, 9 and 10. This is brilliant. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. You know what he's saying? 
is this blessing of salvation for those who are circumcised or uncircumcised? And he goes, let's go back to the original man. Abraham, in Genesis 15, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 17 is when circumcision comes. And so these Judaizers are saying, you need to get circumcised, you need to get circumcised to get saved. Hold on. Abraham was saved before he got circumcised. And you can imagine them stuttering in that moment. But, 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 but hold on, hold on, hold on. Paul was a theologian, and he read his Bible carefully. And he came in with this truth. This gospel, being saved by faith, is not something that, yes, fully expressed and fully delivered through Christ 2,000 years ago in his finished work and the teaching of the apostles, but it goes further back than that. It was by faith in the Old Testament too. Abraham believed by faith, and he received righteousness because he trusted in God. And the same way he trusted God for a promise, granting him salvation, you and I trust in a different promise, that Jesus Christ paid it all for us. And as we thrust ourselves on that truth, we then receive salvation. Surely these false teachers are trembling in their chairs right now as this is being read. And it says here in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And he says here in verse 7, which is important to know, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You want to know who the true sons of Abraham are? You want to promote your ethnicity? You want to promote your ritual? You want to promote your law? Those who are truly descendants of Abraham are those who truly live by faith. Can you imagine what this was doing to these Judaizers as they're hearing this? They're trying to flaunt their own authority by the authenticity of their ethnicity. Hey, we're true Jews. We know what we're talking about. We have the ancient religion. Hear what we have to say. Paul says, hold up. The man lived by faith before he was circumcised. And those who are of him are really those who live by faith. That's not to say that there is no ethnic Israel. That's not to say that the church replaced Israel. It's to say that, yes, there is descendants of Abraham in the physical sense, but there is a spiritual offspring that are a part of him by faith. That's important for us to understand, too, though we don't have many Jewish Christians in here or Jewish ethnic people. Because you have a lot of people that are putting their faith and their hope in how they grew up and who their background is. And my, pa- my dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. That means lick. It's by faith. It's not where you came from or not the heritage that you hold. It's by you trusting in him alone. So then those who are of faith, verse 9, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was blessed by being justified and counted as righteous because of faith. And those who come to that same simple truth and practice in their hearts will be blessed alongside with him. Three questions for all of us today. The questions that he asked the church of Galatia. One, how then did you receive the Spirit? Can you recollect the when and the how? I'm not asking you for the time and the day. I'm not asking when, the, when the, that evangelist signed your Bible and says, this is the day you were saved. I'm asking it in your heart. Do you remember it? And as you remember it, does it cause you to worship? Do you remember when that burden first lifted off your shoulder? Do you remember when you truly knew you were a child of God? Do you remember even, maybe even the battle of understanding it? I could tell you this, in my basement apartment in that college years of my life, 
It was a battle to understand salvation by faith. It was a fight to understand forgiveness. I can remember one time when I tried to pray before going to one of my afternoon classes, and I tried to bend my knee on that cold basement tile and put my elbows on my bed, and I sprung right back up because I thought there's no way that God would listen to a hypocrite like me. I've tarnished his name. I've went to this event and that event where no Christian should be, telling people I am Christian. There's no way that this God would hear me. And slowly God wooing me by his grace through the truth of the scripture to say, no matter what you've done, I'm willing to wash you clean. Do you remember that? Let it cause you to love this message of grace more. If you don't remember that, maybe today is the day for you to receive it. Secondly, you attempting and I attempting to grow in Christ, are you doing it in the spirit or are you doing it in the flesh? Is it being energized by falling in love with who you see and as a result wanting to become like the very person that you are beholding? Or is all your energy in this and not this and do that and stop and cut this off and stop hanging out with her and stop hanging out with him? Those have their place, but if they're not motivated by love for the one that you're beholding, then you're going to quit. Listen, those kind of people are the ones that are keep going and cycling in sin. Do you hear me? Those are the ones that are always frustrated in their walk with Christ, always. Disappointed, feeling condemned, questioning their salvation because they've missed the principle. If it started in the Spirit, it is sustained by the Spirit. There's no ease, there's no joy, there's no flow. Why? Because you're not beholding. Simple as that. And lastly, as a group, may we never allow ourselves to come to the point where we can boast in whatever God does through this place. Because it's by faith. It's by His grace. And it will only grow by faith. And it will only attract more of His power by faith. I think we can stop right there to enter into worship, to say, Lord, you've done it. We want to see you do more. Lord, we're thankful for this message of grace. May our hearts be convinced of it all the more. May our hearts be convinced of it all the more. Would you bow your heads with me?